We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. There's other reasons why I have problems with what Roderick is saying. So one of the things is that he focuses a lot on employment. He says, manufacturing is becoming automated. You won't be able to provide mass jobs for people with manufacturing in factories like you used to. You know, of course, at the very low level, you can, you know, garment factories, electronics factories, where we have all these women slapping together these things in giant warehouses. Yes, that provides mass employment for a while, but he says, you won't be able to provide as much employment with the automated factories of tomorrow with AI, ooh, AI. We have to distinguish between manufacturing as a source of production and output and growth and manufacturing as a source of mass employment, right? If you want mass employment, as Milton Friedman said, give people spoons to dig ditches, right? Just make some work for people. We shouldn't view manufacturing as make work. There are gonna be a ton of Indian engineers. There's gonna be a ton of Bangladeshi engineers. There's gonna be a ton of Tanzanian engineers. There's going to be a ton of Ethiopian engineers and people are going to be like, what? Ethiopian engineer, Tanzanian engineer. Yes, there will be. And you won't even know about it because you'll be sitting around all day, you know, yelling about like some conspiracy theory about Taylor Swift, you know, the Super Bowl. Welcome to Econ 102 where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Hey, Noah. Hey. How are you feeling today? Oh, uh, you know, about the same. Trying to think of what to write next. I wanted to do two things today. One is talk about the back and forth we had the other week about the thread about in the economy, where it was saying that maybe some Inflation numbers are fake, et cetera. You wanted to debunk that thread. Uh, I'll uh, link it again here in the chat and also on, on Signal, and we'll put it in the, in the show notes. And then I wanted to talk about your great post the other day around poor countries needing a new development strategy or just international development in general. So, so maybe we could start with some debunking. How does that sound? Yeah, let's do it. Debunk. Debunk. <laughs> I've debunked 20 things just this hour. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, so, so first, you want to. I've got my tea, my trademark tea. Amazing. First, you want to explain a little bit about what the what the they're trying to say in that thread, and then maybe you can say why. Uh, oh, why this is this is EJ Antoni, PhD, blue check, <laughs> real EJ Antoni is his name. He works with the Vince Caglianese show and Rich Zioli show. He's the in-house economist for these entertainment program. So I'd say he has a similar job to me. So anyway, he has this thread, uh, January jobs report, the real unemployment rate is a lot higher. So let's talk about unemployment rates. Unemployment rates date back a long time, but they're not an amazing measure of, of the labor market because unemployment rates are based on going out and asking people, are you, do you have a job or are you actively looking for work? You know, if they say, no, I'm not actively looking for work, then you're out of the labor force. You're not even counted in the denominator of the unemployment rate. And so if you're, if you say, yes, I am looking for work, you're counted in the labor force and then you're counted in the denominator. So 
changes in who says they're looking for work create uh, swings in the unemployment rate that have nothing to do with who actually has a job. People have realized this, at least we realized this since the, uh, the Great Recession. And so we, really economists realized this a long time before that, but then the public realized that, you know, in the 2010s. And so we have other measures. It's much better to look at employment rates, not the percent of people in the labor force who have a job, you know, but the percent of people in the population who have a job, the employment rate of whole, the employment to population ratio, if you will. When you look at that, and it's also important to look at the employment to population ratio for prime age workers, because sometimes you can have big swings in like how many, you know, young people are going to grad school versus not, or old people in early retirement, blah, blah, people working for longer. So the, the, the prime age, the age 25 to 54 is much less affected by those swings. So it gives you a good idea of what's really going on in the underlying job market. And here we see that the prime age labor force participation is pretty much as high as it's ever been. I think it was one percentage point higher in the at the very end of the 1990s for like, you know, just a couple data points. But I think so technically it's not an all time high, but it is very close. It's above 80 percent. So that's really good. There's all kinds of other alternative labor market indicators you can look at. So when this guy says the real unemployment rates between 6.3 and 7.4%, he's looking at other al alternative unemployment measures. Remember that unemployment has this problem of being dependent on the labor force, blah, blah, blah. But you can, you, so, so for example, there's U6, right? Which U6 is this broader measure of unemployment than the one you hear quoted in the press. U6 includes people who are quote unquote, part-time for economic reasons. So if you tell the survey person, oh yeah, I have a part-time job, but I wish I had a full-time job then you are counted as part as unemployed in U6, right? And so, you know, U6 has like a bunch of other sort of marginal people, you know, you kind of have a crappy job that you don't really like, blah, blah, blah. So, so if you, but if you look at uh, U6 unemployment, so that, that's what this guy is talking about. That's what Antoni, the real EJ Antoni is talking about. But then, so if you, but if you look at U6 unemployment rate, it is also, it's at an all-time low. So, you know, in the, U, the U6 unemployment rate reached like 17% at the beginning, you know, in the early days of the Great Recession. But during, you know, the Trump years, it was more like, you know, 7 or 8%. And right now it's like 7%. So basically that's that. All. So, yeah, if you want to use the broader unemployment rate of U6, then unemployment is higher than the official U3 number that you hear reported in the news. But... It's lower than it was under Trump, which were good economic years. It's lower. Than, it's really, it's good. You know, it looks good. So that's one thing. Um, let's see. What else does this guy say? He says that things look good now because previous periods were revised down. Yeah, but you know, if you're at all-time highs, that doesn't matter if the previous periods are revised down. The current period could get revised down, but, you know, in the future, we could find out, oh, yeah, payroll growth was a little less in that month. But recently, things have been getting revised up instead of down. So, you know, things get revised up, things get revised down. It basically mostly depends on which month you allocate stuff to. When you have an economy that's growing rapidly, you tend to have things get revised up later because it's like there's a lot of economic strength. There's some economic strength you don't pick up in the initial surveys. And when you have things getting worse, you have things getting revised down. So things got revised down in, you know, in 2022 because they were worse in 2022 than we realized at the time. 
uh, because oil prices were high and it was sort of, especially early 2022, it was kind of a bad time. But things then, you know, in late 2022 and especially in 2023, things started getting really good. And so things are getting revised up from there. So I wouldn't, you know, like people need to understand what those revisions are about, how those revisions work. You know, he talks about, oh, so he, he shows the gap between the establishment survey and the household survey. So, so there's actually two ways we measure who has a job. We go around asking regular people, oh, do you have a job? That's, you know, the household survey. And then the other one is we go around asking companies, you know, how many people do you have on payroll? Those are two ways of getting at the same thing. When he says double counting, what he means is that if people have two jobs, if people have multiple. But the, the two series have separated a little bit in recent months, but this is not driven by multiple job holders, which are actually at a, at a low. The idea that everyone's working, you know, people are working multiple jobs and this is clogging up the employment statistics. Well, that's not right. Both of these surveys show, you know, essentially all-time highs for employment rates. They're, they're both showing really good data. There's a gap between them, but that gap doesn't say much because both surveys are sort of at their, you know, all, at our very near their all-time highs. This is a very positive uh, measure. And, you know, so all serious economists do actually agree that the, this is all going well. Oh, so, so he talks about full-time versus part-time employment. Here's another one. He says, oh, you know, in the most recent month, part-time employment increased a lot. And so everybody's working part-time. It's not real jobs. But if you look at the level of part-time employment over more than a month, if you look at it over a few years, you'll see that it's at all-time lows. And it ticked up in this month, but it's like, it's, you know, extremely low rates of, of part-time employment relative to the total compared to history. We usually have a lot more employed people working part-time than we do right now. Anyway, I could rattle on all day. Yeah. Oh, a couple of quick follow-ups. One is, so personal savings rate as a percentage of disposable income is lower, right? Right. And is, is it possible there's a sort of behavioral change where people spend but don't want to reduce lifestyle or is inflation taking a bigger bite than the headline numbers show? Well, you know, inflation is taking a bigger bite. We would see, you mean, is inflation actually undercounted and there's a whole bunch of hidden inflation? Well, no, the answer is no, <laughs> it's not. Yeah, no, that's not happening. We have got a lot of different ways to measure inflation and, and there's private people who measure inflation. Our old friend Balaji promoted a site called Truthflation for a while, <laughs> which claimed to show much higher inflation, you know, a couple of years ago. Like, oh, they're not telling you the inflation is actually super high. Well, now truthflation is showing lower, their, their own, you know, kind of made up numbers are, are lower than the official numbers for inflation. So, of course, you can then go to, you know, you can probably hunt around and find some other sort of quacky site with a crappy methodology that will show you higher inflation. But the point is that, like, nobody's reporting, oh, truthflation says inflation is being overstated. It's actually even lower than the government numbers suggest. No one's saying that because they've got a narrative to push, Right. If you're trying to say, oh, we want you to elect Trump, don't elect Biden, the economy sucks, then, you know, you're going to say, oh, inflation is much higher than it's being, you know, than they're telling you, right? And people who remember, you know, a year and a half ago when inflation actually was high, like people who remember that are going to think, wow, yeah, inflation still going on. Yeah, it's, that's just the way the world is now. They're tricking me, you know, they're lying to me and blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's an effective rhetorical strategy because what you're essentially doing by bullshitting about the inflation numbers being, you know, undercounted, you're reminding people psychologically and mentally of the very real inflation that happened just a year and a half ago, just two years ago. And you're making it fresh in their minds. And that will make it take longer. It, it will force inflation to stay lower for longer before people get over it. 
So maybe you can influence the election that way. But the truth is that no, inflation is not being overstated, is not being understated. You know, every time they, the private companies come in and try to do very careful stuff, like the billion price project at MIT, they didn't have a billion prices, but they used, you know, the copious amounts of like point of sale data that we now have to get an incredibly broad estimate of inflation numbers. And they basically their inflation numbers agreed with the government numbers pretty much exactly. Amazing. Yeah. So that, that series recently went private. So you have to buy that now, but as you know, for the entire many years that they ran it publicly and for free, it, it just agreed to the government numbers. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. What about also, you know, credit card debt per household is, is, has been rising and is it possible that more debt per household sort of disputes the rising wages narrative, especially if there's possible lower disposable in income, although I see why that's disputed. No, but there's not lower disposable income, there's higher disposable income. You know, disposable income's higher in inflation adjusted terms and, you know, wages are, are rising. When that happens, people have a tendency to borrow, right? When your wages are going up and your income is going up, people have a tendency to borrow. And if you look at surveys of how people say their own personal economic conditions are doing, they're actually really upbeat. If you look at surveys of how people say the national economic condition is doing, they're still somewhat downbeat, although it's increasingly that's just Republicans who say that. But the partisan divergence has just opened up like an insane amount. But if you look at what people say about their local economy, their state economy even, or especially their personal finances, they're very upbeat. And you look at, you know, wages, incomes rising. When this happens, people borrow. And you and I can say, well, I wish they didn't do that. I wish people would save more money. I wish Americans would save more even in the good times and wouldn't go like, woohoo, my wages are going up. I can just like, you know, buy all this stuff, put all this money on this credit card. But in fact, they do that. So. During good times, you see, per, you see people save less money. You see debt go up because people think they can handle it. People think they can carry this debt. Maybe they're doing it for, you know, just because they want to live a glam lifestyle and impress their friends, or maybe they're doing it just because they're short-sighted, or maybe they're doing it because they are rational economic agents who know that they'll be able to handle the debt and blah, blah, or maybe they expect, you know, all these kind of things that you can imagine unhealthy motivations for people to consume. And you can say that a good economy would be an economy in which people aren't borrowing to buy things. You know, that, that would be the really strong, good economy that we'd want. But you tell that to regular Americans and like, no, I want to borrow and I want to buy things. I want this car. You know, that traditionally, that's what Americans like. Americans like buying a new house, buying a new car, buying new TVs, buying, you know, all this stuff, vacation or whatever. Like, that's what they like to do. They like to consume. And when they're feeling more confident, they tend to borrow more. If you look at the times when savings rates were high, it was in the Great Recession and COVID, right? That's when savings rates really went up. People saved a ton of money during COVID because they were uncertain. They were, you know, who knew what was going to happen, right, with this pandemic. In the Great Recession, it's like, oh, everybody's house got, you know, destroyed, like their, their housing value got destroyed and, and people don't have a job and their jobs suck. And what are any of us going to do and help, you know, so, th so they save money. Because saving is caution, right? Saving is being careful and cautious. And so that's what they did. We see people save during bad times and borrow during good times. And that's just how it works. And we can sit here and say, Americans, you should save more money all day long. But if you're looking at what's an indication of a strong economy, it's actually borrowing. Yeah. And so 
you, you haven't done your debate with Balaji yet, I don't think, though mm-hmm. when, when you do, we'll, we'll replay it here. But well, no, we, you, we should actually get him, get him here because the, the people who wanted to do it on the Bankless podcast sort of never followed through and that kind of fell through, but we can... We oh, can great. So, so we'll, we'll, have him, we'll have him here. But he, you, you already talked to him, obviously, a, a bunch about this and he's shown a bunch of graphs and those graphs, I guess, show sort of... I'm trying to remember his favorite ones. I guess the, the debt basically rising significantly or sort of the Fed printing money increasing. Like, I guess, what's the steel man of his, his views that we haven't yet discussed and why, why are they wrong about sort of the uh, fragility of the sort of American you know, banking system or, or economy at large? Well, I haven't. So th- th- actually, that's a question I don't know the answer to because I haven't looked at Balaji's most recent, uh, you know, pronouncements of doom. Uh, I would say <laughs> that Balaji predicts, you know, like so far, Balaji has predicted, you know, hundreds of the, you know, hundreds of the zero collapses that have happened so far. <laughs> But, you know, there is that time when the prof- the one day the prophet of doom is right and then doom happens. Maybe it'll happen. I think if there's prolonged, you know, civil unrest and government conflict and civil military conflict, if Trump is reelected, then we could uh, see that kind of thing. So, so I think then, so like if Trump fights the military, like uh, Erdogan did in Turkey, which I think would be kind of likely, or if there's prolonged civil unrest, if Trump actually follows through on his promise to like organize militias to go deport millions of people throughout cities throughout America. Um, I think that Bill, you know, it was a fantasy in 2017. All these people I knew thought, oh, the, you know, ICE is about to come through San Francisco, busting down doors, looking for illegals. Of course, that never happened. That was bullshit. If they actually tried anything like that, it would be kind of a war in the street. We'd be back to summer 2020, but, you know, maybe even worse than summer 2020. So, so if, I can see it's not impossible that this will happen. I think Trump, you know, and the conflicts arising from a return of Trump would be the main vector of that or, you know, or like a stolen election. That would be the main vector of collapse in terms of, you know, the system is naturally collapsing because look at how much inflation we've had since 1902. No, that's bullshit. That's just what gold bugs say. And it's never been right. And there's no, theoretically, there's no reason for that to be right. So I don't know if that's, I don't know, you know, what Balaji's most recent thing is about, you know, countries always have problems. And if you want to set yourself up as an anti-statist such that you're like, all states will eventually collapse and just pull up every problem that countries have as reasons why those states will collapse, we'll always be able to find something, right? But when you look at states collapsing, it's actually really rare. You do see it occasionally, like the biggest collapse, biggest state collapse we've seen in like, you know, modern recent history is the collapse of the USSR, which is big, prolonged, widespread, fairly devastating, but they did recover, right? Under Putin, they became richer off oil and gas revenues, but I guess that's kind of what they were using in the USSR at the end as well. But then they, um, you know, they became richer than they had under the USSR after, you know, a decade of, of chaos and, and, you know, massive murder and alcoholism and all that stuff. They did kind of recover. We've seen in, you know, in some smaller countries like Venezuela had this massive economic collapse. It was prolonged. It was, you could see it coming and you could see it happening and you could be like, oh my God, this is really happening. That can happen. So far, we're not seeing any signs of anything like that in America. And there's no reason to think, you know, Venezuela is a petro state. It's an oil uh, dependent state. And they have this state-owned oil company, PDVSA, that used to be very competently managed. And then Hugo Chavez and his successor, Nicolas Maduro, raided that company for their pet projects, uh, which included giving a bit of money to poor people, but mostly paying out the front. And they raided the state-owned company and the state-owned company didn't have any extra retained earnings and was unable to invest in oil production. So oil production collapsed. Then 
they had a classic currency crisis and then they tried to deal with that with price controls and basically it all went to hell and you know they like none of this was because of sanctions or whatever this is all before any sanctions existed and really the sanctions that we never had like major sanctions venezuela collapsed because it was stupid and we could collapse because we're stupid if we do stupid things we will collapse that will happen we're not immune to that but so far we're not doing any of those kind of things that that is a good segue to your other piece that you wrote about international development there's been a lot of literature about international development and a lot of different takes on it why don't you unpack what what, what, what you wrote in that, that piece all right so international development became this idea because of decolonization because you know european empires ruled pretty much most of the world and then then they stopped they went away after the european countries beat hell out of each other and could no longer sustain these empires they then they left with a lot more pressure from the united states than people realized though. but they did and then they then after that you had a million billion new countries right you had the new country of ghana and the new country of this and that and before that you had of course had Spanish decolonization hundreds of years before that. So you had places like Brazil and then, you know, India gained its independence. You had World War II, Korea gained its independence from Japan. You had Taiwan, which became de facto independent from China because the, the KMT went there, the, the nationalists went there after the civil war. And so basically had a ton of newly independent countries in the mid 20th century. And the question is, how do they get rich? So in the fifties and sixties, they did two things. Number one, they sold a lot of commodities to to rich countries so you had a giant post-war reconstruction boom and in america it was just a straight-up boom in the 50s and 60s massive economic growth in the country in the developed countries which you know had been the masters of manufacturing and had done all the fighting in world war ii etc those countries europe and japan and america too were rebuilding right and they did so by buying well you know they built the stuff but they bought a lot of raw materials from their former colonies and this time they were paying for them and so there were fights over the you know the neo-colonialism the you know european countries tried to get a favorable price by using their existing connections in their former colonies during those years the developing countries grew, grew strongly and they decided okay we're going to also do manufacturing for ourselves we're going to get rich like the european countries or like america or whatever by doing manufacturing and so their strategy for doing this most of the countries that tried this did a really dumb way of this. They said, we're going to make stuff for our own domestic market, shut out all imports, right? We're just going to make it all for ourselves. We're going to do autarky basically. And so they did, it was called import substitution industrialization and import substitution industrialization largely failed because a, you, it was very difficult to buy imports of the parts and commodities that you needed to make stuff for yourself and B because domestic markets are, are small and they're pretty protected and they're kind of a wimpy little sandbox to play in and they didn't go out and become internationally competitive. So, you know, then in the seventies and eighties, when they ended up like opening up their economies for to trade, all these protected domestic industries just died because they weren't internationally competitive because import substitution industrialization had been a failure. But then a couple countries came up with a better way. They said, okay, instead of protecting ourselves from the world, we're going to open ourselves to trade, but we're going to promote exports. Export-oriented industrialization was the thing that won in the countries that really did it. South Korea, Taiwan, a couple other countries, Singapore, of course, but the, you know, Singapore and Ireland, those countries are like bases for US FDI. But, you know, Ireland is, right, Singapore and Ireland are the closest thing to imperial outposts we actually have in the world because they're just built on our money 
<laughs> they're just like, you know, low tax haven jurisdictions, you know, that are like havens for high skilled immigration that are built on American money. But anyway, and they do very well with this. So Singapore and Ireland, go you. But they're very small. So exports were the, the winning strategy. And then China eventually got, you know, hopped on that bus and it was much bigger than the other countries that succeeded doing this. But, you know, so, so we talk about the East Asian countries and I think there's a bit of a mythos there. There's this idea that only East Asians have the magical superpowers, you know, required to, you know, to, to do this export oriented manufacturing because everyone else just sucks at this. That's wrong, actually. So Turkey is an example of this. Turkey did this very well. Turkey, you know, manufactured a bunch of cars and stuff and has exported stuff, not just to Europe, but to the Middle East as well. East European countries have been very successful. Poland has been an export oriented manufacturing powerhouse and has gotten, you know, to be a rich country doing the same kind of strategy. And so it's now you're seeing more and more countries start to do this, start to try this. The Dominican Republic, that's a name you don't often hear come up in these development discussions. But if you look at the Dominican Republic versus every other Caribbean country, that's not like a little tiny tax haven like Barbados. If you see the Dominican Republic, it's, its economy is shooting up. You know, it's up to like, it's almost as, as rich as China now. It's, you know, it went from poor to sort of upper middle income and is still rising based on, you know, export manufacturing. They're making a bunch of stuff, again, mostly for the United States market is right there. Mexico has not been a spectacular economic growth story, but has been, you know, Mexico has a lot of export manufacturing. Mexico makes a ton of cars, computers, uh, basically cars and computers for the United States. That's made in Mexico. And, you know, Mexico has other problems. They don't have much of a service industry because their mafia destroys their service industry. But they've got pretty good export manufacturing and they bring in a lot of money. Like it's a lot more money than like cocaine, right? Or whatever drug is coming from Mexico. It's a lot more money from cars and, you know, PCs and stuff like that. So, so Mexico has gotten a lot of money from this export manufacturing strategy and, you know, Malaysia and all these other countries that you wouldn't necessarily wouldn't like roll off your tongue. And now Bangladesh. So now Bangladesh is making all the, you know, really went hard for the garment industry. So 10 years ago, if you picked up your pants or shirt and you looked at the tag, you'd see it would say made in China, right? You just assumed that it was made in China until people stopped looking because it was all made in China. Now look at your clothes. They're made in Bangladesh. Look, go to your shirt drawer and pull your shirt. Oh, Bangladesh. That will happen. That happened to me. I was like, wow, everything I have is made in Bangladesh. And because Bangladesh really took over the garment industry with this focused industrial policy. Now, I will say that Bangladesh needs to think about doing electronics now and not just doing garments. They really focused a lot on shirts. And, and, and say more about why? Uh, because electronics, you can climb the value chain a lot more. Like with garments, you sort of top out. Basically, you can make your own fashion company. So we could see fast fashion from Bangladesh. And we probably will see that. We'll see the Bangladeshi versions of those little Italian companies that do like fast fashion. You can skill up to a certain level, but then basically you become the south of Italy and you stay there. But electronics, there's a lot more room to move up the value chain because you start making computer chips and screens and things like that. And at first, the very first thing you do in electronics is you take plastic parts and like, you know, have a bunch of women, because it's usually women, in um, a bunch of women in a giant warehouse slap the plastic parts together. It's not any harder than, you know, running a sewing machine and stitching a shirt, right? In fact, it's probably easier. But then you get, as, as you get more capital intensive and you increase education so people can understand like, you know, how to like solder a thing and then how to like, 
you know, eventually use various computer controlled tools and machines and, and read parameters and things, basic math. And then you get advanced math, you get engineers who are actually able to understand, you know, the physics of what they're doing. Then as you climb the value chain, you get more and more money from electronics manufacturing. And yeah, so Malaysia has really done this. So Malaysia tried to build a car industry and failed. And if you read my favorite book about development, my favorite pop book of development is How Asia Works, which you should read. Everyone should read that book. But then it talks about Malaysia's failure to build a car industry. But Malaysia did not fail to build an electronics industry. So if you go to Penang in Malaysia, is this place that has just a crap ton of you know, electronics companies, and they're not doing like the most valuable stuff. They're not Taiwan, right? They're not making these like tiny, like super cutting edge chips like Taiwan is doing, but they're doing like packaging and testing for those chips. You know, they're doing pretty high value stuff. And Malaysia is now, you know, it's done not quite as well as Poland, but almost as well as Poland. And so Malaysia is like effectively becoming a rich country now and on, on the back of the electronics industry. Of course, they've got, you know, natural resources too, but the electronics industry has really been the, the big thing that sort of propelled them. And so Malaysia's done really well with this. And so, you know, countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam should be aiming for to have electronics industries like Malaysia's. That should be their model. And, but, okay, so, so anyway, that's my overview of kind of like export-oriented manufacturing, industrialization, blah, 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 blah. So, so then we can go into like the people who disagree with that, but does that yeah, make yeah, any sense? You, like, yeah, yes, talking? that's very helpful. And you mentioned uh, Danny Roderick and, and his evolution and then, yeah, the people who disagree when, when you get into it. Yeah. So Danny used to be a big proponent of export oriented manufacturing, just like I'm talking about. He used to be one of the big proponents of this. Then he switched because he wrote this paper in 2015 where he said, okay, so manufacturing isn't taking countries as far as it used to. It used to be that countries' level of manufacturing would, as a percent of GDP, would top out when they hit like rich status, right? Now it's topping out more at upper middle income status. So basically it used to top out when they hit like 50K a person, right? And now it's topping out when it hits 30K a person. It's kind of a big change. It means that having this extreme, going very hard for manufacturing is now kind of a no-brainer until you get as rich as Malaysia or Poland. Whereas going hard for manufacturing in the past looked like it would, you know, take you all the way to where South Korea and Taiwan are. So basically, you look at the difference between the incomes of South Korea, Taiwan, and Poland, Malaysia. And you say, okay, that's a difference. The people in Poland and Malaysia, on average, or Hungary, Romania, people in those countries, on average, are poorer than people in South Korea and Taiwan. But A, it's not a huge difference, right? Like it's not a giant difference. If you look at people in Poland and how they're living versus people in South Korea and they're living like, there's a little, like Koreans are a bit richer, but they're not like a ton richer, right? It's more like, it, it, it's like going from Tennessee to California, right? You'll see that, that California is richer than Tennessee for sure, or Arkansas, right? But it's not like a ton richer, Right. It's not like these are recognizably the same country. And so so. So I thought that, you know, Danny Roderick's paper about premature deindustrialization gave me also to remember it's a tiny number of countries we're working with because the number of countries who got rich from export oriented manufacturing in like the 80s and stuff like that, you can count on one hand. You know, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Ireland. But then the difference is not huge and it doesn't worry me that much. 
right? It's like, okay, well, maybe you'll have to switch to, you know, you'll have to get more of a software industry and improve your productivity, domestic productivity and services more once you reach that upper middle income level to make that last jump to being as good as like, you know, Korea or France or whatever, right? Maybe you need that. But I'm not worried. Like if you're a country like India, if you're a country like Indonesia, if you're a country like, you know, Colombia, if you're a country like, you know, Jamaica, if you're a country, you know, any of these countries that are kind of, you know, still poor, if you're Vietnam or if you're Ethiopia or if you're Tanzania, you know, being as rich as Poland or Malaysia is a dream for you. That is just absolute heaven compared to where you are right now. And so that didn't, it didn't give me much pause. I'm like, okay, you know what? Get from $5,000 per person to like $30,000. And that's a world of change. That's most of the change you need, right? Because then everyone has a roof over their head. Everyone's got food to eat. Everyone's got like a TV in their house. And that's what you need. That's all you need, right? So like if manufacturing can get these countries as rich as America was in the 1970s, I'm happy. Do it. <laughs> you know, keep pressing the manufacturing button. Now, what happened was that then... Danny uh, evolved more in the direction of being skeptical of the export-oriented manufacturing strategy that he had previously believed in. So now he came out with this essay where he basically recommends that the poor countries of today, including South Asia and Africa, abandon the idea of export-oriented manufacturing and focus entirely on increasing the productivity of their domestic service industries. That's very dangerous. That's a bad piece of advice. And Roderick has evolved, quote unquote, too far in this direction. He's made a big mistake. He was right the first time and he should have stuck with that. I wrote sort of a long post trying to, you know, debunk um, some of the things that he said. The, the simplest thing is just look at Bangladesh. You know, their living standards have about tripled since 1995, right? Bangladesh, and they've made giant strides against poverty. So Bangladesh is about, has per capita GDP of about three times what it had in 1995. Now that's not as big an increase as China by any means, right? China's like, I don't know, 10 times, but so Bangladesh is only three times, but you know what? If you're at a low level of income, if you're poor, a three th tripling your income, like imagine if you were a poor person, you know, making like, what, what's a poor person making in America, you know, like $20,000 a year or something. Right. And then you could triple that to 60,000. Well, you're not rich, you know, but then you're not poor anymore. And Bangladesh has tripled its income, you know, using this industrial policy and manufacturing went from, you know, in, in like 1970s, manufacturing was like 4% of Bangladesh's GDP and now it's 22%. So it has industrialized and you know, when Danny saw my post on Twitter, he said, oh, well, Bangladesh only has the garment industry. They're not. When you have to get that specific and granular about the in specific industry failures of some of the countries that are growing rapidly from manufacturing industrialization, that's too, you're going too granular. You know, like look at what Bangladesh has achieved overall and just tell me that's not industrialization. Tell me that's not something you'd want to do. Tell me that's not important. But there's other reasons why I, I have problems with what Roderick is saying. So one of the things is that he focuses a lot on employment. He says, manufacturing is becoming automated. You won't be able to provide mass jobs for people with manufacturing in factories like you used to. You know, of course, at the very low level, you can, you know, garment factories, electronics factories, where you have all these women slapping together these things in giant warehouses. Yes, that provides mass employment for a while. But he says, you won't be able to 
provide as much employment with the automated factories of tomorrow with AI. Ooh, AI. And so <laughs> there's your cold open. Ooh, it's going to automate everything. We're going to be so poor. We're going to be so poor because everything's made by robots for free. <laughs> like, okay, great. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, anyway, so, but the idea is that manufacturing won't be this mass participatory thing. Now, there's reasons to worry about that because I, but, you know, because maybe manufacturing, working in factories teaches people to be disciplined, show up on time, work in a, you know, business setting, whatever. But also, I think that we have to distinguish between manufacturing as a source of production and output and growth and manufacturing is a source of mass employment, right? If you want mass employment, as Milton Friedman said, give people spoons to dig ditches, right? Just make some work for people. We shouldn't view manufacturing as make work. Manufacturing should not be make work. It should be productive stuff. And poor countries will still have comparative advantages in low cost manufacturing. The most important one being land. Land is a comparative advantage. So land, if you haven't noticed, land is really expensive in America and Europe and Japan, right? Where is land cheap? Poor countries, because they don't have all these businesses built out yet. They don't have all these fancy houses and lawns and stuff that, you know, they don't have, all, their land isn't really being used for, for uh, as much stuff yet. So the land is really cheap. If you go to Indonesia, land is really cheap. If you go to India, land is really cheap, even though they have like 1.4 billion people are the world's most populous country, but land is still fairly cheap because there's not enough economic activity to drive up the price of land. So you can actually build a factory. Another thing is environmental regulation. So poor countries are more willing to accept environmental crap that hurts their people. And you can say, well, that's bad. Well, okay, yes. But in addition, poor countries don't have some of the dumb environmental regulations that don't help any people, such as, you know, like CEQA, where you have people suing development projects because students are loud and you don't want student housing in Berkeley because students are loud and that's an environmental hazard. Well, so, so Bangladesh doesn't have that either. So they are missing a lot of the good environmental regulation, but they're also missing a lot of the bad environmental regulation along with it. So that's a mixed blessing, right? But it definitely is one of the, their comparative advantages cheaper everything, cheaper engineers, right? What does it cost to hire a talented engineer in India versus America? Much, much less. That's why all the engineers in India would like to move to America. They can't because their immigration process is kind of stupid, but they would like to because they get paid much less in India. But the point is that those cheap wages for engineers will be needed on factory lines to, you know, maintain the robots and program the robots and, you know, like figure out a whole bunch of other stuff related to the product. Like What's going on? Why are we seeing these tiny cracks in this batch? Let's take it to the lab and analyze it. You know, there will be engineers needed on, in factories en masse. And because these aren't engineers like, you know, your, these aren't Andre Karpathy engineers, right? They're not like your systems architect who's like building the future and inventing massive stuff. These are process engineers. These are line engineers. These are people who are fixing like cracks in this windshield, right? These are people who are figuring out why this robot's not working quite right. These are doing a million tiny little things like that to make all your products work well. And currently they live in China. Those people all live in China right now, which is why China is the master of manufacturing. They, as we increase investment in India, people will be trained and engineers will be trained. They will, we will see Bangladeshi engineers. We'll see Javanese engineers in Indonesia, right? I just went to visit someone's startup the other day and there were these Javanese guys working for them. Like, what, who are Javanese people? What is that? It's a, it's a, a race that you haven't heard of 
in America because you haven't watched the Raid movies, which you really should watch. They're the best martial arts movies ever made. And if, you know, everyone who likes martial arts movies loves to watch the Raid. So you should watch the Raid and then you'll know what Javanese people are. They're basically people from the island of Java, but then there's going to be a ton of Javanese engineers. And then there are going to be a ton of Indian engineers. There's going to be a ton of Bangladeshi engineers. There's going to be a ton of Tanzanian engineers. There's going to be a ton of Ethiopian engineers. And people are going to be like, what? Ethiopian engineer? Tanzanian engineer? Yes, there will be. And you won't even know about it because you'll be sitting around all day, like, you know, yelling about like some conspiracy theory about Taylor Swift, you know, the Super Bowl. And like Americans won't even know that there's like a, now they're now suddenly, whoa, we found a million engineers in Tanzania. Who knew that was a thing that could happen? People certainly didn't predict that like all the process engineers in the world would live in China in like 10 years, 10 years later, they all live in China, but like they don't take that long to train, honestly. There's like, you have to know, you know, know a bit of math and like, you know, you have to basically like, you don't really even have to graduate from college, honestly, but you should, you'll be better off. There, there's, there's these, all these old like media and songs and stuff about America during our age of industrialization. Have you ever heard this song? I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia tech and a heck of an engineer. No, I never heard it. Yeah. I don't even know what that song is. I just knew that. I think my great uncle sang it rambling wreck from Georgia tech. It's the fight song of Georgia tech actually. I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and a hell of an engineer. A hell of a hell of a hell of a hell of an engineer. Like all the jolly good fellows, I drink my whiskey clear. I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and a hell of an engineer. Anyway, he just keeps singing about getting drunk and then mentioning that he's an engineer. What do you think this guy is doing, you know, back when he when they wrote this song, right? When was this song written? Wow. Uh, 1908 oh no 1895 1895 what do you think this engineer is doing you think this engineer is freaking nikola tesla you think he's like inventing you know you think he's like inventing is he's alexander graham bell you think he's inventing the telephone or the microwave or whatever no no he works in a factory and he figures out how to make this machine make a gear right He's, he figures out how to make this, how to, how to make these gears fit together better. That's his engineering. And that's why he can get drunk all day and enjoy Georgia Tech football you know, is, and hook up with the lovely ladies of Georgia Tech. And that's what he's doing in 1895. That's what it meant to be an engineer. And that's what it means to be an engineer today in China. And that's what it will mean to be an engineer tomorrow in India, in Bangladesh, blah, blah, blah. You will not necessarily have mass manufacturing of sweatshops and all that stuff, but that's okay because you'll still have producing output and that output will still get export revenues. And those revenues will still, you know, first of all, you'll be able to produce stuff domestically, the old dream of import substitution, but more importantly, you'll get export revenue and you'll be, that money will come into the country and it'll be spread around because all those engineers will go and they'll buy, they'll go to medical appointments. They'll go to dental appointments. They'll go to, I don't know, back massages. They'll need home furnishings. They'll need someone to build their apartment buildings. They'll need someone to come and install fire alarms in their apartment buildings. They will need haircuts. They will need food at restaurants because they're so busy working in the factory engineering things all day. And so they will need all those things. And that's called a local multiplier. The, you know, the money you get from the exports gets spread around locally and all these service businesses spring up. So Danny Roderick says, focus on local services. Well, local services work best when you have export revenues coming in and creating this multiplier effect and getting them uh, to, to spread around. And so 
that so manufacturing will still be very important, I think. And I think that ba Bangladesh is showing this uh, with the garment industry. Vietnam is showing it with a number of, of industries. Right. And then honestly, I think these guys have a tendency to sort of wave their hands and say, well, Vietnam, they're kind of like China. They're East Asian. Of course, they can do manufacturing, but nobody else can. When you see this, like Apple is pouring investment into India. When you see in India, Bangladesh, Indonesia start to do it, you know, Malaysia's already quietly sort of done this. Nobody noticed because nobody cares about Malaysia in America. Unfortunately, they should care. Malaysia is important, but they don't know about it. And then you have Turkey doing it, but no one's paying attention to Turkey. You know, and they say, oh, they're kind of white people. They're kind of Europeans. They can do some, they can make some cars. Sure. Because Germany does. When you start seeing South Asia do it, then people will add South Asia to their list of people that we believe can make things, right? We'll say, oh, of course you can make stuff in India. Of course you can make stuff in Bangladesh. They're South Asian. Yeah, of course you can do that. You know, Asian values, work ethic, blah, blah, blah. They'll make up some reason why these people can now make stuff, right? But they'll say, oh, but this strategy is totally wrong for Tanzania and Ethiopia because they're African. Africans can't make stuff. You know, of course, South Asians can make stuff, but Africans can't make stuff. And then, you know, and then they will too. And then eventually, because when, when one place industrializes, then costs really rise. Labor costs rise, energy costs rise, all land costs rise, all those costs for those engineers that, that rise and rises. And then eventually it becomes uneconomical to make stuff, to keep making stuff there. You starting on the low end and then you getting to the high end. And then all the, the companies there go looking for new places to make stuff cheaper, like Tanzania, I don't know about there. So, so industrialization sort of proceeds in stages, right? This is called the flying geese theory. And there actually is some support for this. Right now, a lot of the Indian engineers are being trained by Chinese engineers who are being flown down by Foxconn to train Indian engineers in India, you know, to do this stuff. They're not necessarily going to Georgia Tech, but they are being trained by their Chinese predecessors en masse because the foreign invested companies are having them go train people, right? And so then, and they're like, there's this great article I read about, you know, how this is working and what this looks like you know, about Indian factory workers and the Chinese engineers training them and managers and stuff and how the Chinese people like only want to eat Chinese food. So they're like, I don't want to eat this local food, but what is this? You know, it's too spicy. I don't know, whatever. You know, years ago, it was Taiwanese and Korean engineers who were coming over to teach Chinese people how to do, and German engineers coming over to teach Chinese people how to do all this stuff, right? Back in 2002, you saw this. And so we're now we're seeing it happen again. Does that mean that every country is going to get as rich as South Korea? No, but it's a way of escaping poverty. And I think Danny Roderick has been misguided in going back on his earlier ideas and sort of throwing this idea under the bus and trying to cancel it and say, well, no, focus on local service instead. There's no precedent for what he's saying. No one's ever successfully done that. And he has, he doesn't really know how you would go about doing that. It's just like a thing you can say and write down an essay to express your pessimism. But no, he's wrong. Well, that might be a good place to, to wrap where we're at the hour. No, another, another banger of an episode. And uh, until next week. It's been fun. Until next week. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. 
We're launching new shows every week and we're looking for industry leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co. And let's partner together.